You know, welcome everybody. Welcome. Uh, gonna have a fantastic podcast and webinar with my new friend Chris Griffith. Um, and he opened my eyes to a few things because I've always believed one way, and I've built my built my financial freedom one way. And he's actually gonna talk about something that when you first hear it doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense, but when it gets explained to you, it makes perfect sense. And so what we're gonna do is talk about his theory, and we're gonna talk about my theory, and give you, you know, you take away from it, whatever you take away with it, I have full confidence that y'all are smart enough to take notes and critically think, and then do what's right for you and do what works for you, but to be armed with the information that he's gonna share is awesome. So Chris, welcome to the show, man. John, thanks for having me, man. I appreciated our conversation the other day. Um, I think the genuine opportunity for a, di a dialogue <clears throat> of what may be seemingly opposing viewpoints because of sometimes our, and I say this cautiously, but our narrow-minded views based off of, of three things, our education, our experience, and our exposure. And to start out, I'll say that uh, cash strategy or money makes the world go around or all of those things wasn't something I put into practice uh, because it was the most reasonable. It was because we were broke. It was the only practice we had. And at the end of the day, depending on where you start, what your perspective is, what opportunities you have, I don't think things like debt are necessarily good and bad. I don't think that uh, those instruments have those qualities that can be ascribed to them. I think that what they accomplish for a person and what they open up and achieve as far as new opportunity goes through efficiencies, um, I think can make all make or break a, the difference of someone's financial future. It certainly did for mine. Absolutely. And sorry about that. We got a little, uh, got a, I started a video on the watch party. I've never done that before. So it'll be interesting uh, to see. I've never done it live. I've done it before. And you're right. I mean, we are, and I'm going to sound probably conspiracy theorist here and I'm not, I don't even want to go down that road. We do that stuff around campfires, but we've been programmed. They, whoever they are, the system wants us to follow this particular route. Does that make sense? They want us to put our money into the 401k. They want us to put our money into set by arrays and follow the traditional system. But it's when you're able to break out of that traditional system and see things differently. Listen, I was mentored by some pretty awesome people. One of them, I mean, was on the Clinton, Bill Clinton's economic board of advisors, right? Left, right, center, it doesn't matter. To have that position is pretty wild. His viewpoint on wealth creation is very different than anything I was taught in any school, right? Um, so you told me, well, first, we'll, I'll, I'll just throw out there real quick, and then we're going to turn it right over to you because I'm more interested in what you have to say because I'm more traditional. But I built my freedom by having multiple streams of income. I made a whole bunch of money, lost it, rebuilt it, walked away from it the second time, and have rebuilt it a third time. And the only way I did that was by becoming a little bit frugal, a little bit conscious of where I was spending my money, but building multiple different revenue streams. And those revenue streams, I mean, it's still a val valid way. Those revenue streams are what allows me to be out of the rat race. When How do you create those revenue streams with capital or uh, uh, value that you have? The revenue streams, uh, two ways. One was through uh, network marketing, right? So time and energy. And the other one was through capital and a vision on a couple things that I created. 
Okay, so let's suppose that a lot of these people don't want to do network marketing. I'm assuming you're talking multi-level direct some sort. Yes. My wife is actually involved with a makeup line that she's used for 20 years. I disagree with the strategy, but whatever, it's not a recourse because the only other opportunity that you described that created this revenue stream concept that allowed you to continue to grow and best was achieved with your capital. The problem here is to start the conversation there, you have to assume that I have capital. And if you do that, you're going to pass over the most needy and not in a bad way, but the people who need the biggest opportunity, you're just going to call them right off the bat because they go, well, I have no capital. Okay. Well, so let's start back further. Then if you have nothing, how would you have done what you did? It takes time. You, you have to build on it. It's slow. But the point is you didn't abate cost or risk as you went through that completely. You look for efficiencies. Um, Debt Does Deals is the name of my company because I don't think that money makes the world go around at all. Um, my favorite thing to do was to walk into listing agents offices or to buyers agents offices and say, hey, here's a coffee cup. If you can answer this question in a way that you feel comfortable with, I'll let you have the cup. Does money make the world go around? And every single agent, nearly always, unless they're exceptionally experienced, would go, yes, that's a true statement. And then I'd ask them, great, how many cash deals did you close last year? Like, I don't know, maybe three or four. Like, wow, what a crappy year. And they're like, no, 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 we closed like 40 transactions total. I'm like, wait, you had three or four cash transactions last year and you had a great year with 40 transactions. What do you mean? She said, well, the people had a loan. Of course they did. And the point of it is last year, 2018, 88% of the people that purchased a home used a mortgage to do it. Now, why did they do that? out of need, out of efficiency, for a lot of different reasons. Wealthy people don't abhor debt at all. Actually, the ultimate determination of wealth is, is it large enough to substantiate its own debt needs? Because when super wealthy people get wealthier, they have family offices, and those offices generate notes from one company to another with their assets, because debt's more advantageous for a lot of different reasons. Risk, namely, is one big one. We all saw what the user has to carry as far as risks in a major economic downturn. To all of those people that profess money as a currency that makes the world go around, I would tell them money does one thing naturally. It loses value constantly. So to your point, in order to create revenue streams, if you don't have a lot, where do you get your first a lot from? And how do you use it to create something, right? So that's where my strategy comes in. Like I believe that with nothing, Utilizing and understanding debt, you can change your stars. To put it in a Heath Ledger sort of a way, love that movie. Mm. Because that's my story. It didn't start from a lot. The problem is getting to those first places to where you have the capital. You know, homeowners are on average 44 times wealthier than renters. Mm -hmm. Harvard put out a study, post-mortgage real estate value market apocalypse. In like 2008, I posted all the time, or 2009 was when the study came out. And it said, even after that economic downturn, owning a home for those who were able to continue owning was the most reliable way to changing and establishing wealth for their future. So much so that all of these programs and products that are put out in ways of debt instruments, it's all about affecting change to the lowest common denominator, because if they can affect change there, then you have a different type of growth of the economy completely. So if we can use debt to achieve ownership of an asset that appreciates what then does our equity accomplish? Nothing, it's money doing this. Your equity does not grow at a better rate with or without a note. Your equity grows the same. The cost for those things may vary, but I, keep in mind, Einstein said, 
compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He didn't say amortized interest, even though that's the opposite, right? The point being because he wasn't concerned so much with abating cost as he was with providing for rapid compounding growth. And so for the majority of people out there that don't have a lot, if you're like me, right? Like most people don't have a lot, you can achieve your first a lot. Most people's biggest first win comes from what? Their owner-occupied residence. It's either that, an enlistment or military bonus, an inheritance, or some unusual big odd win, right? And so if you don't think you're going to accomplish any of those, where are you most likely to get your first large chunk of equity? From a house. Okay, well, how do we work backwards from there? My life has been about working backwards to achieve solutions that reason with reality, not just theory, right? And so the theory of money makes the world go around, makes everybody feel warm and good. But here's what I'll tell you. Hold up your dollar. It says Federal Reserve Note on it. A note is a dead instrument. Money is a money and debt are both currencies. The only difference is one of them just constantly declines in value. I don't like the idea of buying a house with a mortgage. I like the idea of fixing the cost and the value delivered for 30 years of my money while effectively securing it to an appreciating asset. Because then I can free up all of my values, the equities, to do more important things like provide for a compounding liquid reserve that gives me years worth of mortgage payments into the future, while also freeing up my capital to begin compounding or creating other revenue streams, whether it's from real estate, stock market, I don't like, sorry. I'm a real estate for life type guy, but I'm a framer son. I grew up in Podunk, Pottsboro, Texas. My dad's framing a house to this day with his crew and they've built everything around here. We didn't have a lot growing up, which was cool. We had everything we needed, lots of love. But I watched as my dad and his company and his business partner, Stuart Holder's company, built every house within a hundred mile radius of where I'm sitting right now today, which is in my old neighborhood, different houses go around, right? If it's going to be here 300 years from now, my dad built it. He did. And that means where the location is, the stature of the property, the quality of construction, all of those things. So he was the premier guy that made those things happen. But at the same time, me as a five, six, eight year old, the house that we lived in, I remember going to my dad one day and be like, dad, 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 I've got it figured out. Let's just build us one of those houses. And that was the pivotal moment, like where I started to realize that a lot of people that worked on this money makes the world go round thing really held in check more than anything. Because what they're doing is they're putting all their stock in debt, in a currency, in money, right? That's only going to lose value, right? Its sentiment is the most, its value is the most fickle debt that there is. Its value changes daily, largely based on sentiment alone. Right? And its future only exists in fiat. So if you're filling your grain house with money, you might want to read up on what filling grain houses with values of your own uh, can, can do for you because it, it's, it's not good, man. You can lose it, it can go away in the night, all of those things. You need to be leveraging your values to achieve a better future given the certainty, like the certainty of reality and expectation that's reasonable that you consider encountering. In the beginning of this, you said 401ks. Yeah, I love 401ks. I call those future government savings programs. You know how hard those things are going to get hit when like my homies, my generation, sorry, gets in the office. You think taxes are going to go down on them? Like don't deliberately stock and store your values into things that aren't likely to be there is my point. And money, I don't think is as much as everybody likes to think about it or, or place they like to put it in, right? 
it can be changed. Actually, it can be, look at Venezuela. It can be taken away at any given time, right? So I have a friend of mine, multimillionaire, and uh, we got a couple things that we're invested in together. And he loves hard assets. We have uh, 24 units together. And he's been one of my mentors, started out as a client, very brilliant guy. And I said, Bill, I said, you're 70 years old. Why do you have, you know, these assets? He goes, because if money is taken away, I can bottle for rice or bread because people are always going to need a place to live. And, 100% correct. you know, we're, we're worried about all those numbers in a bank account. And that's all they really are, truly numbers. And that can be taken away at any given time. And it's not some fear-mongering stuff. It's real. So what's the best way? What, what do you think your strategy or, or you would advise? And, and take it from like a lay person all the way up to like a seasoned person, right? Because some people listening to this are going to listen to what you're saying for the first time and be like, man, this dude's wacky, right? And you might be. We don't know. But you yeah, make maybe. sense. You make sense when we talked about it on the phone the other day. So give us some ideas on how to do what you're talking about um, for the average person or how they can help their clients do this as well. Because if they can help their clients do it, they're getting an income from it. Sure. Yeah. So considering the audience of realtors or maybe financial advisors out there, financial advisors usually understand the, the importance of and the in instrument of debt better than anybody because they sell a different type of debt that's a forward leaning uh, with different products, which is pretty neat. As far as how you get started, for me, I'll just tell you the story of how I got started. I got out of the military, was medically retired early for nothing cool or sexy, um, mm. right? And got to Colorado, hit the ground there in 2012, bought a house, it was a short sale with zero down, not because I didn't have anything, I didn't have a lot, but I knew from my studying the market, I break it down into a five-step process, market, identifying five things, market, location, acquisition, rehab, and sale opportunities, and the timing of those and how you invest in them, which is a longer conversation. But I'd found a property that I knew was gonna make somebody a killing. I didn't have a ton to get it. I definitely didn't have the money to buy it. So I bought it with a VA loan, zero down for 332,000. And it was a short sale and all of the people said it couldn't be done because VA loans don't do that. Right. Don't have a narrow mind there, guys. Uh, the VA loan is more impactful, more efficient, more capable than any debt instrument for a residential home that I know of on earth as a debt, self-professed debt professional, meaning I assess these things and the value that they give long-term. But with zero down, I bought a house for 332 grand, rehabbed it with every opportunity I could from um, cash on hand, extra cash that we could save over that five and a half period time. And then I sold it for 810 grand. It was in wow. Franktown, beautiful home, my favorite home. Year three, I pulled out 364 grand, final sell at deposit 147. So two deposits, I can track over half a million out of a home. Some of which was forced savings, some of which was tax-free equity appreciation. And some of it was forced principal pay down as well. Although I did not and would not make extra payments on my mortgage. Once I've purchased the value of my money, I wouldn't, like the longer I hold that, the less harmful it becomes to me. $1,000 today hurts me much more than $1,000 10 years from now is gonna hurt me. Not because of my own natural ability to increase income, but because the natural determinant of money's value in the future, right? So year three, I pulled out a bunch of money and I put some safety nets into effect. I created a principally secure compounding liquid reserve that I could access for debt maintenance, 
right? And I did that based off a of theory. Um, commercial loans, right? They issue these multi-million dollar loans in a non-recourse manner, meaning they're not going to go after the borrower in the event of a default. They're just going to take the asset. And they do that because they underwrite the security of the investment itself. So I took somewhat of an approach like that by creating a compound liquid reserve so that we don't have to worry about costs because I was fixing many of those costs. A lot of people under operate under this mindset that you can pay a house off. Really, please show me the currency that pays off taxes, insurance, and maintenance because best I can tell, nothing does and all three of those constantly migrate upward, right? So if you can't do that, then paying off a house is a farce. You're always going to manage a rising cost if you wish to own real estate. Understanding that piece, I'm okay with that. My goal isn't to abate the most cost. My goal is to achieve the most gain. So with zero down, I bought this house now that 332 to 810, right? And a lot of people will write this off real quick and I'm gonna follow this up because they're gonna say, well, Denver or South Denver, right? Franktown's 45 minutes out of Denver. They're gonna say that was all market-based. Well, okay. That's fine, I've got another example for y'all here in just a moment, all right? So move that property, realize the rest of that property appreciation and at the, at the ca cash out portion, it actually freed up um, some debt that I was holding, right, for growth. And then it also allowed me some extra capital to leverage into additional purchases for property, right? Those revenue streams that you talked about. I couldn't have got to them just saving my money and abating every single cost that I was possibly considering as a human in the United States these days, right? I couldn't do that. And I did use credit cards at some point, I think about 15 grand on a zero interest credit card. Uh, so I could get a product from Apple. Um, and because it gave me six months to pay it off too, which was in my sell period, right? So again, another type of debt that's often frowned upon, but ultimately more, more easy to reach, more efficient, um, than even a HELOC or home equity line of credit or a second or something would have been on that same position. So it's not the instrument of debt or even the type of debt that it is, but ultimately what it accomplishes. So out of that house, a little over five years, that's my story. I call it a five-year VA house hustle. The house I bought here in Pottsboro, Texas, I bought on a market imbalance. What I've realized and what I've noticed over a long period of time of tracking is when markets grow together, the big market doesn't overtake the small market and the market that's small is all of a sudden better. Doesn't work that way. Look at Austin Round Rock. Look at Colorado Springs, Denver. Look at any one, two combo markets next to each other. And what you're going to find is a rapidly well-performing, growing large market metro that hits an affordability ceiling. And once that happens, the process of diffusion causes people to leave this market and go to this one, right? So that's why Colorado Springs is booming now after Denver did. It's not that it wasn't just as desirable. Properties then were even cheaper. It's that it was, there was more over here until this became ineffective. So what happens, big market grows, reaches its point, and then boom, jump, and the small market grows back. I'm in a market up here, Sherman Denison. There's 26 definable metropolitan markets in Texas. By population, this MSA is like number 23 on the list. But according to many different studies, uh, including one that A&M puts out every year on the real estate market health report, this market's poised to do number four or five as far as percentage-based growth over the next five, 10, 20-year periods. This market's supposed to be going from 130 to 340,000 people, so a doubling in size population. Would you call that, the term to use for that, would you call that an emerging market? I would, yeah, and, and I follow a guy, and I've followed him for a long time, his name's David Lindahl, he's an apartment guy, and I use a lot of different theories, but there's a book out there called Emerging Real Estate Markets by David Lindahl that'll talk about the domino effect of how you can time and understand what's gonna cause, because there are causations, right? What's gonna cause a market to emerge? 
jobs are almost always the root of it. So watching job announcements, right? And understanding that when a new net solid job comes into a market, one or two or three will likely spin off of that as far as peripheral jobs needed now for that market as well. You can begin to time and understand how jobs and how people supply, demand, those things are going to affect real real estate market value changes. So there's some trends going on right now. If y'all notice this, a lot of states, higher cost states, California, New York, sorry guys, pointing y'all out just because it's a fact, but there are large corporations that are migrating their headquarters away from those high cost states to better cost states, namely Texas. Specifically in Texas, the biggest win of that population migration coming from other states is the Dallas-Fort Worth market, specifically the northern edge of it. I'm in a separate market up here on the other side of that edge of the market. And that's the bet that I'm making on the house that I'm in right now. I told you the other day, we bought it for 742 and because of market imbalance and the number of buyers for the type of asset, it appraised for 945, 200K closing. I bought $200,000 in equity at closing. And this is important because it's real equity that I can access and use and value that I can get. But more importantly, an appraiser that brings in a property that much over value you can almost be guaranteed there's more value even than that. He was probably cussing the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. Like they don't like doing that. Three insurance carriers declined to cover the asset from anywhere from 1.2 to 1.4 million at the time of purchase completely. Um, so it's indicative of real value of things that all of these other uh, data points indicate are likely to occur. And so these are the things that we as professionals have to monitor if we want to understand how our clients and their wealth prospects are going to be impacted, not only in ability to achieve tax-free equity growths, but the ability to capitalize on revenue streams. You were just talking about that, right? If I was in California right now, like I don't know what I would be doing for sure. I haven't looked at picking up rental properties and that, but picking one rental property up in California is tantamount to trying to put a hotel on boardwalk, your third go around the monopoly board. It ain't easy to do. A lot of people can't break into the market because of opportunity, because of cost, and because of affordability. And those same things are leading individuals, not only the corporations are doing this, but individuals are migrating away from those markets too. So by understanding supply and demand and and what a shrinking, the supply in the Dallas Metro hasn't been by percentage changed for the positive. There's not an oversupply of property. There's still strong demand, right? Uber just announced three more, 3,000 more high paying jobs with a relocation of a headquarters to Plano. And those sorts of things are going to continue to push that market. We have to pay attention to those. Jobs are one of the most important things to help us to understand those values. But the point is we want to help them in more ways because if we don't help them as professionals on more than just showing a property or showing a mortgage, then guess who's going to replace us? All of the companies right now that are trying to, that think that that's all that we do. Hello. Mm-hmm. Quicken, truly, like the, the lists go on and on, right? And there's systems, technologies that are trying to replace what should be a professional that has much more visibility on the second and third order effects of the decisions and the tools that we work with and show people how to work with. Hmm. For sure. One of the things I want to say too is it's kind of our job as professionals, right, to continually improve. And one of my arguments with agents is they always make it about them or getting the CRS or getting the ABC or getting the XYZ certification. Where really what I think we need to do as an industry and one of the reasons, one of the top reasons agents fail is lack of business management experience. So let me go down that rabbit hole a little bit. Part of business management experience might be 
economics, the economics of your own ecosystem. But if you start looking at the economics of your area or other areas, and the reason I asked about if you would categorize that as emerging markets, because I have a friend of mine that's worth him and his dad, multi-millions of dollars, multi-tens of millions of dollars. What they do is they study emerging markets. They come into an emerging market, they'll find a deal, like a, a huge apartment complex, two, 300 units and above. They have a syndication. This apartment complex might not be um, functioning at its highest capability. So they come in there, they get rid of all the bad tenants, put the right systems in place, change over the management, clean up some of the some of the units, they turn around two, three years down the road, they sell it, they make a bunch of money. Yeah. They study they study emerging markets, right? There's there's a website out there I think everybody should belong to just so you can start to understand what some of these indicators are. Now that's a cost. It might be 20, 30, 40 bucks a month. Um, but it's called uh, housingalerts.com. I belong to it. I can go in there. I have it for, you can have, I have it for Florida. I go in there and I, because if I'm going to be talking to investors, Chris, and now understand, I want to say something to everybody. I've been a realtor for 17 years. I don't really run around with buyers and sellers much anymore. I'm, I don't want to say I'm on a higher level because that's semi arrogant. I think differently. I'm bringing investors together with builders and putting deals together. Right. But why should, so here's the point though, but why should a theory that's sound and concerning all of the same variables and factors not be reviewed for a personal model that is for a corporate model, right? And to, to your point, it should. Durham, Texas, about seven years ago, used to be called Diamond Place Apartments. Look it up now. It's Easton Park Apartment Home, Town Apartment Homes. Um, Easton Park is a property I led point on, found on LoopNet of all places that was overpriced, renegotiated, analyzed, put under contract, did a lot of different things. And we purchased ultimately for a net effect of around 6.7 million, 232 units mm -hmm. in horrible shape because of the way that it was being managed. And today on a conservative cap rate, probably somewhere around seven or so, um, which is still conservative for my market, it has a valuation that's over doubled in six years, six years. It's over 12 million, but that wasn't achieved by affecting change alone to net operating income. This is what a lot of people need to understand. And this is why timing and emerging market matters. Something I want to call cap rate crunch, just because I like the way that sounds. When you affect change to net operating income, right? Capitalization rate of that NOI determines your value. And when you have cap rates that are dropping because of demand and because of the markets getting tighter and more competitive and your NOI is going up, now you have two different lever points on your final determination of value, right? So it's more than just about changing and affecting uh, net operating income as much as it is timing the market so that that change is realized in a multiple level, compounded, right? That's what we should be looking to achieve. Investing with the tide, market growth is tidal, right? If you try to launch a boat in Alaska where they have very large tides, right? And you don't time the tide right, you're gonna look like an idiot. You're probably gonna get stuck on the beach. Because that's how they launch them up there. It's a regular occurrence. It's a cycle and it has a process. And if you try to do it at the wrong time, you're going to run into more difficulty. Now that's not to say it can't be done and it can't make sense and you can't make it work. But my point is with the property we bought, we encountered a lot more difficulties than were one disclosed. A lot of them were deliberately held and, and, and lied about, right? We encountered a lot of other difficulty as is often the case for anybody owning real estate. They're always surprised by something, right? So I have a big stupid home buyer warranty. So I can pull the penny slot machine and make sure that they cover my AC unit if it goes out. 
right? Not because I expect some big windfall from it. But if you don't time that right, then all of that work you do to affect change on net operating income, let's say the market gets less competitive. Now all of that work doesn't yield what it would have back then in the past. So you have to time these things to make growth exponential. And that's what we should all be trying to achieve. Because even if you screw up this first part, if the second part was right, you're probably gonna have a much better risk aversion tool there that's market-based and not based off of your own actions. Because we all make mistakes, we all miss things. We all make mistakes. Now I want everybody to think about that that's watching this, everything that we, we've been discussing, right? This is some high level stuff. You're not gonna get this at uh, your board of realtors or some lunch and learn. This is some, some deep, and I'll even go as far as to say, this is really like high level commercial kind of stuff. And if you wanna start carrying, you know, utilizing the debt and understanding what cap rates are and NOIs and all these other things, you gotta be able to talk to talk. If you wanna invest in it for yourself and get an 18 unit, a six unit or, or a commercial piece, you gotta understand these terms. We all know the basic ones, triple nets and all that other stuff but you've got to understand these terms because if you're wrong, when you're doing your analysis, you can lose a lot of money, right? You can really get burnt on those, but understanding and studying what emerging markets are and understanding, yeah, jobs are coming to that area. Uh, I know a lot of people that are investing in, uh, I think Knoxville, Tennessee right now, because they feel that's an emerging market. Uh, it's very, very well priced, very low price. And there's a lot of things talking about coming to Knoxville and it will in increase their prices. So you've got to understand these emerging markets. You've got to study economics, basically, is what this is. And you've got to understand analysis and things. But like everything else in our industry, Chris, people don't even know where to turn, right? So what would be step one for somebody that wants to start understanding this stuff uh, as like, entry level so that they can grow upon what what would you say understand nothing else but that one new people into any market will cause demand to go up and if supply doesn't follow and it's slower that that's going to cause an appreciation of price okay mm -hmm. right so understanding what is driving demand for the product that you're a part of right and if you're in real estate it's a number of people that are looking to buy or do something in that area understanding that is critical you have to understand what's happening to population, what's likely to happen to population, the effects of affordability with the population growth that has occurred, the, that piece of it. it. That, in my opinion, is the catalyst that allows the rest of it to happen. And many different things can cause that or allude to it in varying you know, periods that may be you know, six months, 12 months, or even a year out. I've been telling people that Uber Elevate, right? It's their automated, air taxi service based off of UAVs has already announced Frisco as their world headquarters starting point as they push and grow, which they're working on. And then Uber announces here, they're bringing in this another piece, not attached to this because they haven't announced on that yet, but they're bringing in this other element with 3000 jobs. Those jobs are good jobs for the area they're going into. They're all above the affordability line. So you can simply say, just like when Toyota moved their headquarters here or PGA or whatever else, the responding growth of value after that was just it's done. It's going to happen. It's, it's already occurring unless some major calamity strikes, which you know, we can talk about that, but understanding that critical point in the beginning on what starts a market to move is the most important in my opinion. 
And that has to do with uh, supply and demand, jobs, the people yeah. being driven into the market. And that's exactly what we're focused on down, what we're doing down in Florida, because there's a huge project that Allegiant Air is building, uh, the airline Allegiant. Uh, and they're building this huge, I think it's a $50 million complex. When they're done, they're going to have the largest pool in the world. It's a tourist destination. But you know what that means, Chris? That there is a whole bunch of workforce housing type that needs to be built. Just yeah. because it's going to take a lot of employees to run that place. So that's, you know, we're focused on that. Where are the jobs? Where are the creations being built? What's happening in your backyard? Now, we might, it's important, we might miss the jobs, like in New Hampshire, we're going to miss the jobs, right? Toyota's not coming here. It's just not coming here. So we might miss the jobs there. But what is happening is local development. And you, one thing I would really urge people to do, and this is boring as hell, but I've been doing it for 17 years. I take a look all the time online, my town has them, what the agenda is for the up and coming planning board and the zoning board for a justice. Yeah. What's happening? Is there gentrification happening in your area? Right? Is gentrification bad or good? That's not this discussion. But if gentrification is happening, you want to get in before it starts to gentrify. Right. And I'll say too, to all of those that are going to hear the word gentrify and tense up because you think it's something that's race relational, it's not. The commonality to gentrification, it has nothing to do with the color of the number of melatonin, nothing to do with your skin color. Blacks are gentrified in certain markets. Hispanics are gentrified in certain markets. You want to look at some of the highest and most likely people to be gentrified out of a market that don't have anything to do with any, either of those? The elderly and single moms. The market that I'm a part of when people get gentrified, they move to RVs or apartments. They get gentrified completely out of it. And some of them go to single wides with tarps on their roof across the border in Oklahoma, right? Gentrification happens to everybody. It's a process of growth. And if you don't prepare for it, you can't even capture it. So there is a certain cause and effect that happens from supply and demand that's always gonna cause this. The problem is when we begin to try to understand it from a metric that doesn't matter, like like race. And that's not to say that it's not important to understand the impact created to certain races in certain markets because things like redlining that are long past have helped to create pools of people in those markets and other effects. But to say to affect change to the future in the manner that you want to accomplish and starting with a race related portion of gentrification, I just don't think that you're going to actually achieve what you and I would both likely to achieve. And I like to show people how to accomplish the biggest opportunities of their life and the most efficient way possible. Period. End of story. All of this stuff, there was a question on here from John Kella. <clears throat> and his question says, it's funny you say this, the high level commercial stuff in quotes is something I offered to teach at the local board. I got shot down. I did this as a training in my brokerage and the agents loved it. They all wanted to go out and buy investment properties now. And this is important, but here's the thing and I'll say to that statement, the manner in which I apply all of this high level stuff, is not on the commercial level. I'm talking about the owner-occupied individual, the guy that's got one house, one shot, one opportunity, Eminem, baby, to change everything, right? They have to be able to capture that. And, and, and that opportunity may not look exactly like what they reasoned, but it's either capture it or have the glacier seen roll over your dead corpse, right? There's, there's certain glacial movements and markets that you can't affect change to. And in certain markets, supply demand jobs aren't the only things that have an effect to valuation of real estate. And here's a great case study. 
the city of Fort Worth right now, and they're talking about enacting it, is looking at favoring a significant reduction in property taxes and replacing the revenue lost, revenue lost, right, with a sales tax portion. If that occurs, here is what will happen. Taxes for escrow make up a larger pound for pound portion of payment than consumer tax does. If they significantly reduce the amount of escrow placement that's held up in a person's debt to income ratio, then more space will be created based off of their income. And when that occurs, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to buy more. Prices are going to be pushed up more. There'll be more affordability. You can rely on that to cause real estate value to increase. Not only that, but demand will be increased because those that can't afford taxes elsewhere may then be drawn there. Because ultimately cost isn't the burden that you have to avoid. You can affect change to cost. Sure. Tax. So That's the ultimate evil. I often tell people money in real estate <clears throat> isn't made when you sell, it's made when you bought. Yeah. And what we're talking about here is basically buying right and buying smart. I do just want to give a shout out to John. He is right. I just want to say this. He is right. The boards, they annoy me. I'm just going to say it that way. But when you open people's eyes to these other things other than, than you remember the movie from, I think it was the late 80s with Rowdy Roddy Piper. He'd put on the glasses and he'd see the aliens and the sign said obey, consume, all that kind of stuff. That, that they, they want you with the glasses off. They don't want you becoming wealthy because it's not part of the mainstream. It's not part of the program. Right. So <clears throat> he, he is right to a point. I, I know him. Uh, we've talked a lot. So the boards, yeah, shot you down because why? Who knows? I'm glad your agents took advantage of that. But when we're buying our houses, it, it, it's buying right. A lot of people, unfortunately, buy based upon status, if you would. You're close to Frisco, right? Frisco yeah, kind of. Frisco has, my sister lived in Frisco, so I, I, I know about it. They moved back to New Hampshire. Um, but, oh, you're not in such and such neighborhood. Or, oh, I, I go to such and such this or such and such country club, right? Only, I'm picking on Frisco only because I saw that firsthand with my sister. She said, this is the most amazing thing. You know, she was high up at TI, but people snook it on her because she's conservative and didn't live in such and such a neighborhood. She stayed conservative. Right. Um, but those people don't have the same opportunity as growth. Now, when she bought her house, it was in a neighborhood that was average. She paid like 380 for it. When she moved back up here, she sold it for like six something. Right. Yeah. So the market appreciated greatly for. Her, right? So when you have a market that has st still strong supply, strong demand, right. Or, or a short supply or not enough supply and still strong demand. And it's kind of stalling out specifically it's, it's affordability that's causing that in those markets my opinion during this next cycle whatever and whenever it occurs the properties that are going to get hit for the most value are the ones that are over whatever that affordability line dictates so area median price right property value if you're buying properties over the median price for that market especially if it's an urban large urban center i think that those are the properties you're more likely to have value struggle to appreciate in because Look at what's occurring in Denver right now. The home builders, all of the, and I'm talking about the institutional guys, the production style builders, they went from building out stuff that was over that hundred or $500,000 line when it got up as high as 504. And I think it's like 488 now, 
but all of the production building was focused on the assets that were well above that median line because there was a strong demand with the types of money that was coming into that market with the jobs that were offered for those. Now, they built out a ton of those and nearly all of them now have transitioned to more affordable housing, right? The lower cost stuff where the demand never really left and caused all of those other properties that were like not supposed to be a $450,000 house to rise to that level because there just wasn't any supply coming online for them. What you're gonna see in Denver now, production home building, mom and pop builders, everyone focusing on building out a supply they can sell to make profit. And the only ones that have a significant, reliable percentage-based demand in that market are the lower echelon ones, the affordable ones. And this guys, if you're in Denver thinking, this guy just did affordable housing, talking about a $350,000, house. Yeah, well, that's the value fluctuate, man. It's type, go to Home Depot and type in a product and it's gonna ask you your zip code before it tells you their price. That's why, right? So in those markets, if you're buying below that medium house um, value, right, the average market value house, you'll have better opportunity. I'm also a fan of renovating, right? Renovating for value, forced depreciation, taking control of those things. Because like you said, I think that, like I have three steps of my process that all happen before I acquire a property. Because I think like you, a real estate minded person makes their money when they purchase. The sale is somewhat expected even if there's a varying degree of time frame dependent upon the market but the fundamentals that dictate in their mind at least that they're going to have a profit have already been achieved typically up front in most of those serious investors mindsets especially as you get into the larger institutional guys sounds good all right we've been here for 42 minutes so let's wrap it down three minutes what's the name of the book and what's one thing somebody can do right now to start learning about everything we just discussed i would say the first book is that emerging real estate market book by a guy named david lindahl it's written from a commercial property lens but the metrics that cause the market to emerge are the same the only difference is the guy with the commercial lens probably has a little bit better x factor on that lens than the typical buyer does in the other markets mm -hmm. the, the very first thing that you can do is you can realize Homeowners are 44 times wealthier than renters. You should be trying to become a homeowner, in my opinion, as quickly as possible. With tech coming online and the flyover states becoming popular, what you're gonna see is, I think, the tech revolution is gonna accomplish for middle class and the flyover states what the industrial revolution always wanted to, but couldn't because of geographic limit, limitation, right? If you can understand the supply and demand aspect of it from emerging real estate markets, and you can get into a house somewhere that's affordable by picking the market right based off of that first step, wait and watch. You don't have to do anything right off the bat, right? Even if it's just time, you're gonna be in a better position having purchased, having moved forward with that, with the right metrics guiding you on when or, or what, right? Than you would be otherwise. If you have any questions, I'm on Facebook like a, like one of my, you know, a 13 year old girl, I, you know, I'm all over it because that's where most of my community, like my community is. Me too. They're there and they can interact with me immediately and I'll engage them. And I don't like contrary type arguments. I like, I like iron sharpening iron. So if you watch this and you want to have a conversation, shoot over to my page. You'll see a link for me on here. Um, but I think conversation is how we move forward and continue to impress upon the consumer this one important fact. Well studied professionals, human beings are needed to guide these processes. If you rely on tech alone to do it, you're going to be giving away a lot of value. Awesome. Man, I'm, now the coach of me is going to come out and say this. Y'all, you just listen to all this stuff. 
your mind should be thinking, well, at least I hope it's thinking, but I would say your mind should be thinking, I want to learn about this stuff. 44% more wealthy are homeowners than renters. I want to learn about this stuff so I can educate my community. So I can have home buyer seminars. So I can give them factual data. And then also do it yourself. Now then you can start to branch out on maybe other type of investments, two family, three family, six, 12, 18. But start with your local community. You're all agents. Your job is to sell houses to people. So if renters are in your area, do a home buyer seminar for them, show them the benefits, learn about what Chris is talking about, get the book, shoot over to Debt Does Deals, learn from them, follow them on Facebook, because it makes a lot of sense. Anyways, I want to thank you, Chris, for being here. Hopefully, everybody got some value out of this, even if it's one piece of value that changes and helps you. It's a win. So thanks, man. Thanks, brother. Y'all take care. Peace out.